Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Bobby Rush on I Ain't Studdin' Ya. First, I wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, author's last name, book title, or sort by category. For instance, select the Biographies and Memoirs or Music category for episode number 133 with Talib Kweli on Vibrate Higher. Yo, this is Talib Kweli, Vibrating Higher with Vibrate Higher. You are checking out Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Bobby Rush is a Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Famer, two-time Grammy Award winner, and someone who has recorded more than 400 songs over five decades in the music business. And he's just written a book about it all called I Ain't Studdin' Ya, My American Blues Story. Bobby, thank you for the time. How you doing today? Well, I'm doing great, man. I've just been working for the last two or three days and, and glad to be back work because this vibe has been had us down for about a year and a half or two years, man. But I'm, I'm, I'm getting to go back to work, but a little shaky thing is that it seems like it's coming back up again, you know? Yeah, we are in uh, very tumultuous times right now. Hopefully this is something that turns out to be a little bit less serious versus what we've dealt with over the last year and a half now. And I got to tell you, I was blown away reading your book over the last week or so. When did you decide you wanted to write a book? And what is your ultimate hope for those who decide to read this book? Well, I didn't decide to write the book. It's kind of what pressed on me uh, from from my colleagues and friends and always asked me, Bob, I want you to write a book and tell some of your stories. But I didn't want to tell the stories that was in my heart 10 or 15 years ago maybe 20 years ago, because most of the people I was talking about, I could talk about, was living at the time. I didn't want no brain, no bad feeling or hardship on someone that I told a story about. So then uh, as life went on and I got older and I started thinking about myself, well, let me write this book and talk about the things that I've been through, the ups and downs, and what I want people to know about myself, that I'm not saying I'm the only man had hardship and ups and downs. But I want people to come by thinking after they read this book that all the things, all the hills I climbed, all the situations I've been in, all the hardship that I went through, but I made it out of it. And I know if I made it, you can make it too. That's what you, I want people to get out of this book. Love that message. And those hardships really started as a kid. You grew up in the deep south in the 1930s and 40s. What was that like? Oh, man, it was like uh, it was some good times, some bad times. The bad time was that most of my life as a kid, I wasn't making any money, per se. Uh, working on the, the cotton fields, working in, in the gins and flying the mule, chopping cotton, picking cotton, a certain meal, just farm things that, that I raised up doing. And I didn't have any outlet to listen to it. Music other than hearing it from a radio standpoint, because what that many musicians in my family around me that I that I knew about that I could learn from. But when I started listening to people like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, BB King, John Lee Hooker, Jimmy Reed, Louis Jordan, people like that, I started hearing their records on some jukeboxes, some turntables, and then I started listening to a radio station WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. And a couple wasn't local, but they were localized kind of radio station. Then I learned about a few things. You know, my dad had been a preacher. We didn't have that much outlet to listen to 
anything other than gospel and the blues uh, on some radio. We had to sneak that at night when when my daddy was asleep or studying the Bible or whatever. And it was a it was a it really was a hidden way for me to learn anything other than what I've learned. That wasn't very much, but I took what I learned and tried to make the best out of it. Race was a confusing thing for you as a kid, and a lot of that had to do with your mom. Why? Well, see, my mom is blue-eyed and blonde hair. My mom was my babysitter when we was in public. She was my mom when we got home alone. My dad was her chauffeur most of the time, or some of the time, when we was out in the public. Uh, he was her husband and my father when we got home. And as a young boy, I didn't understand that. But as I got older, I started understanding that my mother was saving my daddy's life. And she, I don't know what was about her life she was saving, but I think she had to do some of those things with white people that because she was considered as a white woman when she had to be, uh, when she wanted to be. And so she played two lives. And, and I guess I played two lives with her, not knowing that I was a son in such situation, but she was babysitting me in other situations. So when I got older to look back at that, that was a, that, that, that didn't set well to my mindset. And, uh, but I lived by it and, and smiled about it. I had no chips on my shoulder. I know one or nothing that I have done. If I had to do it all over, I probably do the same thing I did then because that's all I know to do. Mm. I had plenty of love for my mom because she protected me as a mom. She also protected me as a, if, if she called herself a babysitter. I, I'm, I'm looking back at my life now, her life. I know she protected my father because they probably would have killed him been have some dealing with this white woman which was my mom and she was a black woman but she was uh, on my mom's side uh, my grandmama's side rather now I don't think there's no black people hmm. how did you end up acquiring your first guitar and what was that feeling like to hold it in your hands for the first time well let me let me tell you about this guitar I wrote about this being my guitar. But later on, I found out that they had a name for this thing called Diddly Bow. But I didn't know anything about a Diddly Bow. Didn't know anything about a guitar, really. I just knew that it had strings on it. So I took this broom wire and took the wire off of it and unwrapped it and stretched it out and put it on the wall and I nailed me a, a nail in the bottom of it, nail in the top of it. And I put a brick in the top of it and a ball at the bottom so I could sound like the elbow jane. Doom, jane, doom, doom. Wang, dang, doodle all night long. That kind of a sound. And uh, one day the brick fell out from the, on the wire and hit me in the head. Started me to bleeding all across and down my face. Then uh, a couple later it stopped bleeding. Then I got real smart. I reversed the brick at the bottom to fall at the top. So if it did break or fall down, at least it, if it cut me, it wouldn't hit me so hard or make me bleed so long. <laughs> so those, those, it, was, it wasn't a guitar. It, you know, it, it was a one-string guitar. I call it my guitar. And later on, I found out it was a diddly bow. Diddly bow. So did Bo Diddly name himself after the diddly bow way uh, back in the day then? I know, I know Bo Diddly from 
19 and 20 years old, and I thought he was an old man when he was about 25. <laughs> I was about 17, 18. Uh, so with Muddy Water, but I don't think so. I don't know where it comes from. I never heard him talk about that. And much as i been around him, as well as I knew him, I never heard Bo Dilly talk about that. You know? uh, only thing I remember about Bo Dilly telling me or laughing at me is when I went to Chess to get a contract, I was going to try to get a contract. And that was a, and I told this in this book, and that was a literature piece of paper on one of them desks. I can't remember which one desk it was on. And I said, the union was journeying, 10 and 208 were journeying together. And I said to Bo Dillon, Muddy Waters all was sitting around, Willie Dixon, Little Walter was there, John Lee Hooker. And I said, wow, man, this is going to be great. The union is merging now. We can get represented well because now we get represented as well as the white guys can get as musicians. Before that time, we wasn't getting represented well as black players. So, but we had to join the union. So I said, "This we're going we're gonna to be fine now. And Leonard asked his brother, Theo, said, where did he get that information from? He said, off your desk. He threw it back at me and said, what that say, boy? I said, and I read it to him. I said, the union is merging. It should be a, a good thing for the black musician now. And I, at that time, I said, the colored guys. And he turned to his brother and said, and use the N word. He said, we can't use that N because he can read, talking about me. So I made a mistake for letting them know that I could read. But then again, uh, I don't think at that time, Willie Dixon was writing two minutes of song for the black guy, because most guy, most of the black guy, a lot of the black guys couldn't read or write. So how are you gonna write for a guy who can read or write? Couldn't read or write. So that means, uh, tell me that Willie Dixon wasn't really writing the song for most of the guys. He was taking credit for writing the song because he had the opportunity and the will and the know-how to put it on paper. So it may have said, Muddy Waters wrote this song on the record, but in the contract to BMI, it was said Willie Dixon. That's a lot of time that was happening. That was one of the more infuriating stories in this book, Bobby, is you know, you're know you on the verge of getting to make this record with your first major label in Chicago after grinding for so many years and seeing those around you, your colleagues, your friends, starting to hit the big time and you hadn't gotten there just yet. It felt like you were on the verge of getting to do so. To have that taken away because you're able to read well, that had to have been just insult on top of injury. Well, it was an insult to me. And, and when I look back at it, at the, even at the time it was, but I didn't understand why would they uh, do me like that. But when, you, but when he threw the paper to me, I didn't understand what was going on. But apparently Bo did it because he laughed. He probably knew that Russia never did that hmm. to let him know he could read. And I don't, I don't know what Bo did could read uh, uh, at all. And, and a few others around them, I didn't, I didn't know. Maybe not well for sure. And maybe not at all. But I learned later on in the years that he could not. And uh, but maybe that's why he was laughing at me. Maybe he was laughing because he knew something I didn't know. Uh, that's it's always been a puzzle to me. That's been a puzzle to me, and also it's always a puzzle for me. 
one I wanted to do my daddy knew that my mama was protecting him, his life for being with this white woman, which was my mom, which she was black, but she was a bad complexion and and you couldn't tell whether she was white or black. Mm-hmm. And I think my mom protected him. I don't know what my daddy knew or what he just had to play along with the role because that was his life. I just don't know. Because I've been in some situation, I talk about that in this book, that almost been in the same situation where I had to deal with people, with men who involved with my family, with my wife, and, and I knew about it, but I couldn't raise no sand about it because of my life's estate. Mm. And that's a bad situation to be in. Yeah, no doubt about that. One more question about your childhood and adolescence before we move on to your time in Chicago and beyond. You paid 75 cents to see the great muddy waters at the Townsend Park Rec Center in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. How did that show change your life, Bobby? I don't think I knew it, it would change in my life. I'm just living it one day at a time and enjoying the ride because I thought I was on my way to some some stardom kind of a situation. When I look back on it, I was a long way from it, didn't know what I was doing. But coming from the South and seeing the places that I couldn't go into because there are no color allowed, uh, you could have to go around to the back door to get a sandwich and what have you. And you just couldn't stay in hotels, couldn't do the thing that white people did and the people around me did that was another color. And I said, well, I'm going to leave here. And I left 1947, went to Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And I said, well, I'm going to Chicago. But I didn't have that month, enough money to buy a ticket to Chicago. But I did know about B.B. King and a few of the other acts in Memphis, Tennessee. So I got enough money to move to Memphis, Tennessee for a week or two, work on Bill Street, working a dollar and a half or two dollars a day, whatever I could get on the street, tap dancing, playing my guitar, blowing the harp, and taking a little chip, make two or three dollars a day until I got enough money to go to St. Louis where Albert King, Chuck Berry was. Well, I played in East St. Louis, not St. Louis, East St. Louis, until I got enough money to get to Chicago. I said, well, now I'm in Chicago. This is going to be my heaven. This gonna, everything going to be fine now. This is going to be what my, this is my milk and cream now. This is going to be it for me. And Bo Diddley and uh, J.B. Lenore, Muddy Waters, told me about a place in the suburb of Illinois, Blue Island, they call it, that little suburb town. So I know a place you can get a job and you can make $7.50 a night. $7.50 a night, a long way from $3. I said, wow, $7.50 a night, man. Come on, $21, $22 a week, a weekend. It's money. So I went round to meet this guy. And he said, come on around to the back. I went around to the back. The bar was uh, behind the, the bar was, the stage was behind the bar. It was sitting up high behind a bar. But it had a curtain in the front of the stage where I had to play every night behind a curtain where they wanted to hear my music, but they didn't want to see my face. I didn't think too much about that, but I know Muddy Water and Bo Dilley probably said to themselves, this young kid don't know what he's doing. He'll work this gig. 
And they probably said, I can't work it, but I know a guy will. Probably talking about me. Hmm. Hopefully, that's what they was talking about. But I worked it because I had no choice. I needed the money. Then I had some fun behind the curtain. <laughs> because after I knew they didn't couldn't see me behind the curtain, I would invite my little girlfriend behind this curtain. Well, one at a time, sometimes two at a time. I would play a little <laughs> and then feel a little. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the kid, because nobody could see me. I was say, "Wamba, wamba, wamba, wamba." I'll be. <laughs> oh, my hand going like this. Oh man, please! <laughs> and I had fun with myself behind the kid, because nobody could see me, you know. And the next night, you know, being being old Bobby Rush, I have a different girl back then, you know. It's just my girlfriend, just friends, and uh, hey. That's what, and that's why I had that's why I had fun with because I had to have something to keep me from going crazy behind a carry plane every night. Well, you always had, or I, I don't want to say always, but your act is known for having a very comedic element to it as well. When did you realize that you were funny enough to actually uh to, to keep the crowd going by making them laugh in between songs? I I knew it as an early, early kid, man. I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian. I never heard. <laughs> I remember when I was just a teenager, uh, Brett Fox told me, "Mr. Bobby Rush, I got this guy. He wants to hire you, but he need a little band leader. But he needs somebody to MC. They call it MC. And but you got to be funny. And uh, you know, Mr. Walters, that when he called him Mr. Walters, he don't laugh at anything. I said I can make him laugh. <laughs> he said, if you make him laugh, you got a job." So he come, called me to the place one day about 12 o'clock in the daytime. Nobody there but he and I and one other guy cleaning up the place. He said, I heard you you was an MC and a comedian. Yeah, he said, boy, make me laugh. I said, I went by this girl's house yesterday afternoon by 4 or 5 o'clock. She wasn't home, but she had the door. And I walked in the house. Shortly after I walked in the house, she came home. He said, she came home. He said, what do you do? I said, I stepped behind the door. She walked in the door. I said, boo. She said, oh, Bobby Rick, that's you. You almost get my panties off. I said, boo, 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 boo. <laughs> and he laughed. And he laughed. And I got the job. <laughs> oh, that's And I great. knew I could tell jokes. I could be funny. And I'm a comedian. If you listen to my song, you can hear all the elements of fun in this uh, cracking joke. I talk about the garbage man who stole my woman. I talk about Big fat woman. I talk about the little skinny woman. So skinny, if she turns sideways, you think she's gone. I talk about the big fat woman. You know, I even told it in the in the book, and I tell them all the time. Say everything in this book, but truth. But one thing, maybe not be true. That I say I wouldn't sleep with a fat woman no more. I made a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how often you've told this story on stage, but the uh, story of you and little Walter and you realizing that you needed to uh, incorporate the harp or the harmonica a little bit more into your act is the stuff of legend. So you moved to Chicago in 1953. Little Walter is somebody that's one of your neighbors. You guys live in the same neighborhood. And at one point you're hanging out with them one day. What was it that caused you to want to play more harp with your shows? I saw that money had. Walter was in Waukegan, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. He said, what you doing today, blood? I said, nothing hanging out. He said, he live, he live, he live on Troy. I live on Albany, which 
back to back street. We could talk talk to each other at our back door. So he said, well, come go with me this afternoon. I'm going up to walk here. Just about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. I said, we going this early? He said, yeah, I'm going to go up and hang out with the guys and gals that play. I'm going to play at eight o'clock tonight. So he went with it early. We got there about five o'clock. Yeah, we got three hours to play. And little Walter walked in and about four, four or five ladies at the bar. Later on that afternoon, about 6.30, four or five more ladies come in. Anyway, about 10 ladies in the house now. Fair-looking ladies, good-looking ladies. And he said, you ladies want a drink? He said, I'll buy you a drink. Now, I, have, I didn't buy you a drink. I had about $2 in my pocket, maybe. Little Walter bought everybody in the house a drink. Now, what he was doing, he was buying beer by the quarts. Everybody had a glass. He bought three or four quarts of beer. One but 25 cents a quart. He spent 75 cents. He got three quarts. Pour everybody some in their glass. And I thought that was awful nice. I said, oh, where you get all this money from? Well, we sat there and Walter was a drinker. You know, he drank like an alcoholic. And he got drunk as the people he was buying whiskey for, or buying beer for a while. And he said, Baba Rush, I don't run out of money. God, I hated that because he was introducing me to every woman walking the house. This is my little brother, Bobby Rush. And they was kissing me on his dog. Oh, man, <laughs> I was enjoying that. Because I'm little Walter, little brother. And he was introducing me as his brother. And man, the girl was, they knew little Walter. They didn't know me. But 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 I'm getting just all this this love because I'm, I'm his little brother. And he saw about 7 o'clock, he said, I got to go get some more money, man. Oh, man, I hate to leave because I thought he was going home, which was about 30, 40 miles get the money. I didn't want to miss the girl that long. <laughs> so he went out to his car. He raised it. He about had drunk. Raised the trunk up. And it was full of money, man. I'm talking about $1 bill. It wasn't no five, nothing. Just $1 bill. And it was just loose in his trunk. Well, I look back on it now. I thought he was rich, but he probably had four or $500. Maybe, maybe four or $500. He said, Bud, staggering. Get you some of this money, man. <laughs> And I would be nice because it's his car, his trunk, and his money. I'm trying to be nice. So I just reached in, counted, got me a handful, and then and, and it was taken all out of my fingers and everything. And I must have had $12 or $15 in my hand trying to be nice. I didn't fold it or anything. And he shut the trunk back up, and the, the wind said, and the, and the money was sticking out the side of the trunk up through the crack. And I was pulling it out one dollar at a time. I got I had about seventeen, eighteen dollars, man. Beer was a quarter of beer. Man, I could buy a lot of beer for that, man. Went back inside. I said, Walter, as we were going up the step, I said, Man, you got a lot of money. I thought you were rich. I ain't never saw that kind of much, much money in my life. I said, Where you get this money from, man? He said, Playing hard, boy. I play hard. I said to myself, Man, I know what I'm going to be when I go up. I'm going to be a hard player because this is where you get rich at. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> that is wild. Slightly more serious. I love the stories that you tell. Certainly going to ask for a couple of more, but you've lived through some historic events in your life, and that included the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. How did MLK's death affect you, the city of Chicago at the time, and also the blues on the whole? Well, first of all, uh, my Luther King meant so much to me at, at the time and still doing what he'd done. But in my life, 
you got to understand in 1947 when I left Louisiana, we was in a, a dump and a low. My daddy moved to Arkansas so he could plant more cotton, so he could raise more cotton in the cotton field, what he knew to do as a farmer, as a plantation owner, a farmer of this country. And he moved there so he could farm and raise cow, chicken, and hogs and everything, and a lot of cotton for his kids to pick it so we can make a decent living more than we made in in Louisiana. But then from that time to this time, I moved to Chicago in order to get a better salary and have a better outlook and better opportunity to do something as a black man that I could not do. So these valleys have been always up and down with me. So when I got to uh, Memphis, Tennessee the first time, I was in this valley because I wasn't making no money. But after I started making 3 or $4 on Bill Street, I went to Peabody with the next street over from Bill Street. And that's when the police run myself, Rufus Thomas, all of us, black men, back on Bill Street. So you, inward, get back over there where you belong. Now I'm in a valley again. Now, when I got to Chicago, I was on an uphill until I went to a place where I had to play behind a curtain. Now I'm in a valley again. Now I start the recording, done put it decently in Chicago. Now I'm uphill again. And I did that for 20 years, up, down, up, down. Oh, but when I recorded Chicken Head, it went upward for me in the six to eight. But then again, when I look back on just a few years before that time, how my down came when Martin Luther King got shot down in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm down again. But but every time, every time I'm in my down, something or somebody come along and lift me up again. Hmm. I was in a down when Floyd got killed because the COVID was in. But then I had an upstroke in my living and life and my thinking and my mind when I saw the Black Lives Matter and white people were marching with the black people. Now I'm up again. Then, uh, then the COVID hit me and I caught it and caught it bad. I'm down again. But then just soon it started, I got well, I was up again. But then that's some, that come a, another racial thing happened in part of a racial thing happened in Washington, D.C. a year ago to march on the White House. Now I'm in, now I'm down again. Not so much as a person but as a black person because as, as a black man and a black musician I'm not working no place because we can't work. The virus is in. Then on the other hand the, the black life matter but I'm a vote matter most and we it's just and a lot of things we as a people is not saying because it's not what you say. Sometimes it's what you do not do not say. Hmm. So we, we have to find a way to get love back to this thing. Love back to our life. To love each other like we wish to be loved. Do unto others like you wish to be done too. 
while you're continuing to work your butt off to get that music career going, you actually opened a barbecue joint on the south side of Chicago in the mid-late 1960s. Now, you didn't say this explicitly, but it sounds like your sausage was something special. What was the key that made your sausage different from anything else that somebody could find in the city of Chicago at that time? I think I think the nerve that I had doing what I've doing what I've done and doing what I do now. <clears throat> I didn't know I had to have this kind of nerve. But you know what God have really blessed me. I got nerve, man. How many black men that you know, especially black blues men, have did what I have done and crossed the bridge I have crossed. Sam Cooke didn't make it cross. DeMarvin uh, Gay didn't make it cross. Although they had big records. You have to understand that some other thing was going on with Marvin Gay. The, uh, Sam Cooke didn't make it. Uh, the Prince didn't make it. Uh, Michael Jackson didn't make it. People are going to find out many years from now. They just didn't die. Uh B.B. King made it as a king, but that's something he had to give up to make it as a king because he sold the rights of his face and his image to do what he had to do. I don't know the whole detail, and I didn't talk about it in this book, but B.B. King and I talk about some personal things, about his career, about his life, because when B.B. King, a year before he passed, he come to me and said, Father Rush, I need you to do something. I said, what is it, B.B.? Is I need you to play the Indianola with me in my homecoming. It's called, this is going to be the last year that I play in Indianola, Mississippi. I said, I'm already booked. He said, I need you. I said, why do you need me? He said, I want you to play with me so I can draw black people to see me. He said, because I want my people to see me going out because this is my last show I'm going to do in Mississippi. Not knowing he was talking about the last show he did, period. Hmm. I did the last show with him, and I honored that because I wanted to do it for BB, not knowing that he was passing the torch down to me. That that's that's devastating because he's I was booked in a place out of uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the same night. The promoter had gave me half of my money. I went to the promoter. I said, "Listen, your show started at five o'clock in the afternoon. You got me headlining, coming on at." Uh, at 11 o'clock at night, I said, uh, I can't do the show for you. He said, why? I said, I got to do the last show for BB King. He's not going to play Mississippi no more. He looked at me, and I had the money, and I pushed it to the table. So said, here's your money back. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. I got to do this for BB. He's hurried his head down. He said, take the money hmm. to build your contract. Go do this for BB King. I couldn't believe that. So I went and told B.B. King what had happened. And the next few months or maybe just a few weeks, I got the B.B. King's award. And the next eight months from there, he passed. And they invited me as his funeral to speak the last word, not the preacher, speak the last word as a funeral. And in the front of his hearse, on the way to Indianola to the grave site, I was in the front of the car leading it, not knowing that I was put there. Hadn't thought about it till months later that he passed the torch to me. Wow. Part of the reason why 
BB was asking you to perform with him in Mississippi is because you made a decision in the mid-1980s to move from Chicago down to Jackson, Mississippi. Why did you decide to make that move? Well, I had been up to Philadelphia with Kenny Gamble, on the Hub, Quincy Joan, all the guys, and they didn't understand what I was doing. So did Calvin Carter and BJ Records in 1968. I had this record called Chicken Heads. I said, I want to record this record, Chicken Head. Calvin Carter said, and it wasn't Chicken Head then, it was Chick Head. He said, oh, we can record a record like this, two X-rays. So I said, chicken head. He said, oh, boy, you from down south. You eat chicken head, chicken feet down there. You country boy. I said, yeah, you're right. He said, but we got to have a B-side. I said, I got a B-side. And I was afraid to tell him what the B-side was. Finally, he said, come on, boy. Tell me what the B-side is going to be. I said, Mary Jane. He said, oh, I love that name, Mary Jane. I had a girl named Mary Jane. Did me wrong in high school. Man, I love that. Let's do that. And I wasn't talking about a woman at all. I would tell my reaper, mm-hmm. getting high, you know. So I found two guys that didn't know what I was talking about, Chicken Head and, and, and Mary Jane. <laughs> and he's finally asked me, he said, Bobby Rich, how do, the, how do the chicken head sound? How it goes? I said, Daddy told me on the dying bed, give up your heart, but don't you lose your head. You came along, girl, what did I do? I lost my heart, my head went too, which had nothing to do with the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so I had me two suckers. I didn't know what I was talking about. So in my music, in my writing, I always have these double entendres, sometimes three. Uh, and three, you can take it either way you want to take it, you know? Mm. And uh, that's what that's where I write. And I write about realness and real, what I know about. You know, Louis Jordan was my favorite guy, man. He wrote about chicken, dog, cows, and everything. I'm a country boy. That's all I knew about country things that I live and was around all of my life. You know, I remember he had this song about a monkey and a buzzard was good friend. Now, apparently the, the buzzard wasn't as good a friend to the monkey as the monkey was to, to the buzzard. So the, the, the buzzard tricked the monkey for a ride in the air. You, you Imagine in your mind, the buzzard flying, the monkey can't fly, don't have wings. And he was trying to duck him off for whatever reason. But he hit the ground and hum him. So the monkey wrapped his tail around the buzzard neck and he was squeezing the whole tight to hold on. But the buzzard perceived that he was trying to choke him for harm. He said, You're choking me. He, and then the monkey said, Well, you straighten up and fly right. Stop all this ziggity zack. <laughs> so that was the song. So then you got to understand, I love Louis Jerry so well. My first record was about a chicken, first big record, first gold record. Chicken head. <laughs> wow. That's pretty close to the buzzer in the monkey, you know? Yes, it does. Now, you have finally started receiving, I think, the proper recognition this century for uh, all the great work that you've done over the years. What has meant more to you over the last 15 years? Getting inducted into the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame in 2006 or the two Grammys that you've won in 2017 and earlier this year? Well, all of it is a big combination for the, the whole thing, but you know quite naturally. The, the Grammy set me apart from from a lot of things and a lot of people. You know, the Grammy is, if you get a Grammy, come on. You know, it's like going to Conaca Hall to work, you know. If you go you go Conaca Hall to work and you got a Grammy, man, you that's top of the that's top of the line. Now I don't know what else you could do in my line, in my little small mind of thinking, what would be bigger than that of the Grammy? You know, now I got a, a 
my first Grammy when I was 83 years old. Now I got the Grammy this year for the best acoustical record of the year, uh, traditional, whatever you want to call it, but it's Grammy, man. And a lot of cats haven't done that, you know? And uh, hey, and it's just and it's just raw, me and my guitar and my big feet, my long fingers and on my guitar. And it sounds like two or three guys playing, but it's nobody playing it but me, just me. That's the way I play. And the good thing about that is that way times are now, people can hire Bobby Rush, just me and my guitar, much cheaper than they can hire me and the band. So it's economically for people to hire me and I get to keep my face in the place among my fans and friends. Because you can see a Bobby Rush anywhere now because I can do two, I can play two ways. With the big band, I can play without the band. I take my harmonica and just tell stories and, and play my harp and sing my song. Because these are 99% of my songs I sing, I wrote them, you know, and God have blessed me that I remember most of them, you know. And and, and the rapper and the rapper watches old Bobby Rush too. Yeah, they rap it. The rapper watches me, you know. If it wasn't for if it wasn't for Bobby Rush, wouldn't be no 50 cent, be a dime or quarter or something like that. <laughs> Is the comedy still a part of the show too? I would assume so. Yeah, yeah, I do some some comedy things then, but I do it in a different way. I don't do it like I'm a stand up comedian. I, I insert it inside of my inside of my song. You know, I talk about a lot of risqueers things. The risqueers to people who who they think I'm going some 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 raw direction, but I'm not because hey, I you know I'm I'm a I'm a blues singer, but I'm a biblical study, not a religion nut. I'm not a religion, just a biblical study. And I know I know my do's and don't. What I tried to do in my life is try to make sure that I can do the things I cannot do because what you can do is take care of yourself. And my motto is now uh, is do all I can while I can. I know that will come a time I can't do but I won't regret at that moment what I did not do. Early on in the book, you wrote that you learned that some things come naturally for a musician and some things have to be developed. What came most naturally for you in terms of playing music and what was something that you had to work your ass off to get good at? All the music thing come natural, but I had to work my way into into being a black man because I wouldn't work in with a white player. So I had to be very cunning to my skin color to make sure that you understand me. And, and and so you go overlook me being a black man, being a man and good at what I do. So what I tried my best to do is be good at what I do. Now, you may not like me, but man, I'm good at what I do. I'm, I'm, I'm good at what I do. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just blessed. I'm good at what I do. You may not like me. You say, well, I don't like Obama. But damn, he good. That's <laughs> all what matters. You know, and I remember maybe 50, 60 years ago, I'm the time maybe a little bit longer, a little bit less, when they invented a Wawa. Now, Wawa was invented where the white guy could play sounding like a black guy. Now you got black guys buying all the Wawa hmm. trying to sound like a white guy who's trying to sound black. <laughs> I tried to sound like Bobby Rush, and I talked. You know, and, and you know, I, I talk talk like this. 
in a little shack down by the bay, not far from New Orleans. I met this pretty woman down there when I was about 19. She went and told her daddy she wanted to marry me. And the look on her face really was a sight to see. He said, get out of here with you and don't you come back no more. Well, I wanted to meet her daddy like a young man ought, but he didn't want no Bobby Rich, a blues singer, to get married to his daughter. When I went by the house that day, he met me at the door with brothers and sisters and big brother John and a dog named Bo saying, get out of here, don't you come back no more. Well, the brothers and sisters sick their dogs on me, made them tap all my clothes. I was running fast trying to get away down a dusty road. I was running fast trying to get away and I crossed the railroad track. I could hear the kid throwing rocks at me every time I stopped to look back, singing, get out of here with you and don't you come back no more. Well, we sneaked down to get married and the jury said, do you solemnly swear? Take this woman for your lawful wife and not a one-night love affair. Before I could open my mouth to say I do, guess who walked through the door? Dad, Mom, Big Brother John, and the dog named Bo. What I thought to myself, if we want to get married anyway, we must find a way to elope. We decided to go to Las Vegas to get away from her nose and folks. Soon as I got to Las Vegas, that same day we walked in, that was all her kin, all her friends, and that big dog again, saying, get out of here until she come back no more. Now, I'm a blessed man. God had really blessed me to remember like that. And I don't take it for granted. I'm so blessed. I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful. I wrote all these songs and I almost remember most of them. The one I don't remember, the one I try not to remember. That was incredible. Thank you for sharing that, Bobby. Thank you. So you like to end interviews with this quote. I crossed over, but I didn't cross out. What do you mean by this? Let me tell you what I mean. As a black man, I'm disturbed about what I hear sometimes. Black men's in my category, a little younger, especially a little younger now because not too many guys around at my age now. They always say among themselves, I must, we black men's, women's. I'm going to record this because I think it's what white people like. I'm going to record this because I think what black people like. I record good music and hope everyone like it's not a black and white issue with me. That's what I mean about that. It's not a black and white issue. It's about the music. It's about good music. The one thing I knew, I knew that God had blessed me to know that I don't know anything. Because if a man tell what he know, he won't talk long because man really don't know anything. So anything else is a guess. It's a wish, a hope, a promise. And you just have to live with the punches that they come in. A life is a training experience. And once you live this, some of this life long enough, there's some things long enough, you'll know some whereabouts and how to turn, make your turn, whether it's up or down or wide or whatever. You know something, but you never can tell. Is it like cutting records? You can't tell. You can't write a hit record. You just do your best you can and hope someone likes it. You know, and, and that's what you do. And I, I just try to, and it's easy for me because I I don't know what I have the best personality in the world, but I, I think I do whatever I have about me, whatever I, I speak, whenever I speak, who I talk to, they can tell it's real because it's free. I don't have to practice this. This is me. I don't have no chip on my shoulder with nothing and nobody. I don't it's, it's, I don't have that because I came up in a different kind of world in a way of, way of thinking 
about people around me. You follow me? I understand being a black man that black life matter. But what matters to me is black folks matter. So let's vote out what we don't want in, take in what we want to take in, put out what we want out. We must do something about it because we're too solid about things that we can do things about. Bobby, it's also time for us to, pardon my French, it's time for us to say fuck those who are trying to just continue to create these fractures between us all because so many of us reside in this gray area and we just want to coexist together, not fuck with anybody else's business, just live our lives and, and try and be happy with our neighbors. And, you know, so much of what happens in the mainstream right now, it tries to pit us against one another. It's time for us all to stand up and take a stand against that bullshit, you know? Oh, man, I would. Oh, man, man, you need a hook, man. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's my statement. Right? That's my statement. Because we all out here. Listen, I got I'm a black man who got Black people who did me wrong, and I don't, I'm not in love with everybody who do me wrong, really, black, white, green, whatever. But we got to, we got to, we got to, we got to, we know it's there, but we got to find a way to get away from it. We know what's wrong, but how do we correct it? Everybody knows what's wrong. Everybody knows. You know what? I'm not a Republican, Democrat, I'm just for, I'm just for the people who treat me well. And I treat you well. I'm I'm a person who lo love to do for you as I wish to be done to. Yeah, you know. And if I fail somewhere down the line, you know, I, I, I talk about all these things in the book. I talk about a lot about what my age when I was 15, trying to get in the play when I was uh, trying to be 18 to get in the play. I did some all kind of stuff in my life. I haven't been all, everything. Haven't been right. Oh, God, Lord, I did so many things. I've never been a drinker, a smoker, get high, no form of factor. But I did so many other things, man. You know, we're not perfect. But, uh, but you know, uh, golly, man, I just tell it on myself. I tell my mistake, uh, my ups, my down, my wishes, my hunches, and what have you. I just talk about them things. And I believe there's a lot of people out there can relate to this book because I don't want no one feeling sorry for me because I'm a musician, I'm a black man, uneducated, or what have you. But I'm smart enough to know I don't know anything. Hmm. So that's pretty smart. And it take a while to get that, you know? And I have a jail ministry and I don't ever sing to the people's in jail. And I talk about mistakes. Because when a man and woman make a mistake and you know it, you can correct yourself anytime. But when you make a mistake and don't know it, that's a terrible thing. Because the Bible teaches me a man to do wrong so long, you'll think he's right. That's something going on really politically. And honestly, that's some people think they're right about what they're doing and they're wrong. That's father me. And when you're wrong and know it, you can turn that around anytime you want to. But when you're wrong and don't know it, God, that's trouble. That's very well said. You have to recognize when you make mistakes. I've got a six-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son at home, and we tell them, look, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. What separates the haves from the have-nots in this world is those who can recognize when a mistake is being made, make the necessary adjustment, Take the necessary lesson from that situation and apply it going forward and stop making that same mistake over and over again. 
You know, I'm, I'm just just talking to you. I just need to think it's our first time we did an interview. But I want people to listen to this interview and listen to you talk to me. And I never met you before, but I can read you, man. I can really read you. It's it's not about a black and white issue with you. It's, it's not with me. We got to get away from this, man. And we got to face the fact. We got to treat each other like we wish to be treated, regardless. You know, this is what we got to get back to. We we and nothing on. Listen, man. Uh, this situation, what we're going through now, it's not an accident. God got a plan for all of us, and we're not just in it because we're black. We're not just in this because we're white. We're in it because we had did wrong to each other. And God's going to punish all of us if we don't straighten up and fly right and stop all this zigzag. We got to we got to make better men and women out of ourselves towards each other. And that's the only way out of this situation. Very well said there. He is Bobby Rush, a two-time Grammy Award winner a rhythm and blues music hall of famer and someone who has recorded more than 400 songs over five decades in the music business. And he's just written a book about it all. It's called I Ain't Studnya, My American Blues Story. It is a phenomenal read. Cannot recommend it enough. And Bobby, thank you for so much for the book and thank you for the time today as well. Thank you very much for having me on. And uh, to the audience that listened to end to this interview, thank you for holding Bobby Rush to your heart and thank you for holding in Thank you for just loving me out of all the things I have been through. If I said anything that shook your little bubbles and bust some of your bubbles, I'm sorry about that. Then again, I ain't studying you. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Join me next time when I speak with Giovanni Rocco, a former undercover law enforcement officer who successfully infiltrated one of America's most violent and long-standing mafia families, as told in a new book, Giovanni's Ring, My Life Inside the Real Sopranos. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.